The Holy Gospel according to Luke, the 13th chapter. At that very time, there were some present who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Jesus asked them, do you think that because these Galileans suffered in this way, they were worse sinners than all the other Galileans? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all perish as they did. Or those 18 who were killed when the Tower of Siloam fell on them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others living in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all perish just as they did. Then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it and found none. So he said to the gardener, See here, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree, and still I find none. Cut it down. Why should I be wasting the soil? He replied, Sir, let it alone for one more year until I dig around it and put manure on it. If it bears fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord. Arndt Halverson, a wise, old, pipe-smoking, grandpa-looking, eyes-often-twinkling preaching instructor of mine almost 40 years ago now, told us that a good preacher prepares a sermon with the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other. I've never forgotten that. A good sermon doesn't just flood the room with biblical truths for people to wade in. A good sermon draws people into the connections between biblical truth and the everyday lives and current events that we live in. Jesus was a very good preacher. I mean, just for example, today, churches want to make sure there's adequate parking for people who, of course, won't come if they have to walk more than a block or two. People walked miles and miles and miles to see and to hear Jesus. And, of course, most worship planners today know that, that number one, you don't want to go much over an hour. And, number two, the late service, for example, better not crowd the noon hour because... Well, good luck trying to keep people's attention if they're hungry and their stomachs are growling. Jesus, on the other hand, was such a good preacher, people didn't even realize their stomachs were growling. They didn't even care if he kept talking right on through their brunch reservations. Or for that matter, right on through the tip-off of the Hawkeye game. That's how good a preacher he was. Because he was feeding hungers within them that were the deepest hungers there are. But they didn't come from bellies, they came from souls. Melissa introduced Kathy and me to a thing we're doing right now that involves what we eat and drink, which I thought going in was just another diet of some kind or another, and maybe in one way or another it is, but it's proven, maybe because it's Lent, to be a soul-deepening kind of opportunity to reflect on things like, what am I trying to feed? When I put things in my mouth, when my body actually isn't even hungry or thirsty, 
which, as it turns out, is exactly what Isaiah was asking in that, in that first reading that Kelly read. Isaiah says, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which is not food? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Jesus, the preacher, was the incredible preacher he was for the way in which people heard him and were richly fed. Interestingly, in the excerpt of preaching that we heard him start today, it turns out that he was actually a, a student of Art Alverson, apparently, because he began his sermon with two current event news stories. The first of which was a story apparently brought up to him by someone in the crowd, that being the story of, in Luke's words, some Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. We aren't told anymore what that is about, but we do know that Pilate was the Roman governor in Jerusalem who maintained order and control in Jerusalem in the name of Rome, and he cared not one bit if that meant flexing muscles occasionally to shed Jewish blood. That was just a good leadership style as Pilate was concerned. The cross of Christ, of course, would eventually be a case in point. But in the case of Pilate, Jesus' cross was not anywhere near the first one he ever ordered, nor was it anywhere near the first blood he'd ever ordered spilled. And so there is at the top of Luke 13, the news at the top of the hour story of this group of Galileans who had come to the temple in Jerusalem to offer animal sacrifices, which was required of Jews. But Pilate, to make whatever point he was trying to make, part of which was no doubt the point that even the Jewish God didn't have as much power as Rome, Pilate had these Galileans killed, apparently right there in the temple, their blood shed with the blood of the animals they brought to sacrifice to God. We don't know, it doesn't say whether or not Jesus already knew that that had happened recently. What we do know, because it does say, is that Jesus then immediately went on to pull another current event news story from the headlines, and a tragic event at that, that being news elsewhere in Jerusalem recently of an accident as a tower of some kind or another had collapsed for some reason or another and 18 people were killed when it did. So not one, but two news stories begin Luke 13, the first concerning evilly awful leadership and the other concerning a tragically awful accident. In either course, of case, of course, then and now, somebody always asks, who doesn't ask, all of us want to know, why do bad things like this happen? And to innocent people, good people. And then somebody else, wanting to live in a world more safe and secure than a world where tragic, awful, evil things can just randomly just happen, takes randomness out of the way by finding a way to blame the victims. Things happen, they say, to people who in one way or another did something to deserve what happened, whether they did, what they did was something sinful or something stupid or something ignorant. 
The exact assumption is one that was raised elsewhere by Jesus' own disciples when they came upon a man who had been born blind. And they said, with this assumption in mind, assumption, they said, Jesus, teacher, who sinned? This man or his parents, that he was born blind. Jesus replied then that the man's blindness wasn't the result of either his sin or his parents. Which doesn't, of course, mean that bad things never happen in this world because someone does something sinful, stupid, or ignorant. Of course there are times when bad things happen in this world because someone does something sinful, stupid, or arrogant and ignorant, including plenty of times, I should tell you, when the someone was me. But what Jesus does go after, by the way, the whole book of Job is written to go after this same thing. Jesus goes after and Job goes after the one-size-fits-all assumption that all suffering in the world happens to people who in one way or another deserve it. As in, I mean, of course, uh, there wouldn't be any people suffering from hunger in the world today. There wouldn't be any poverty in the world today. For example, if those hungry and poor people were, well, they're so lazy. Here, Jesus, in our text for today, replies both to current events and self-justifying theological assumptions. And in doing so, he moves from a news headline to a spiritual, almost kind of in-your-face punchline, as he says, do you think those Galileans whom Pilate killed suffered the way they killed? They did because they were worse sinners than other Galileans? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish as they did. Or those 18 who were killed when that tower fell, do you think they were worse offenders than everyone else living in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will perish as they did. Or the poor and hungry today, whose children die every day of the simplest things that wouldn't happen if they weren't poor or hungry. Or those in Africa today whose lives were taken by Cyclone Idai. Do you think they are worse offenders than, well, for example, you? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all perish as they did. Now, okay, wait a minute, right? How'd we get here? Right? I mean, Jesus, just like that, turns from these news headlines about tragedies, people wrongfully assumed to be about guilt and divine judgment, to instead speak dramatically, forcefully, frighteningly, all of a suddenly, about actual divine judgment. Not of those people, but of, of all people, unless you, he says, repent, you will all perish as they did. Okay. So apparently, awesome and incredible preacher Jesus didn't attract the crowds he did just by telling them warm, fuzzy, cuddly things that they wanted to hear and that he'd learned by going to a week-long Joel Austin conference. He told them true things that he apparently thought needed to be heard which he then continued to do by continuing on to tell one of those parables of his, one of those simple stories of his, which endured the way they endured because they had way more than just simple implications. 
A man had a fig tree planted in his garden, he said, and he came looking for fruit on it and found none. So he said to the gardener, see here, for three years I've come looking for fruit on this fig tree and still I find none. Cut it down, why should it be wasting the soil? The gardener replied, Sir, let it alone for one more year until I dig around it and put manure on it. If it bears fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. I decided to pass on the opportunity to develop the theme that sometimes God decides we have growing to do, and so God decides to fertilize us, and that one very effective fertilizer is manure. Although with hindsight, I do know I've done plenty of growing in my life in times that were, well, manure <laughs> That is true. It's just, really, it's just a detail in this story. It's not the proof that the point Jesus is trying to make. What's the point, the truth he's trying to raise? Well, how can you miss it? Unless you repent, you will die. Jesus said a moment ago, and he did so way more bluntly than we wish we had, he would have. Repentance, of course, uh, you may know, is a primary theme during the season of Lent. Repentance, you may also know, when it's what Scripture considers the real deal, includes three things. Sorrow, plus confession, plus change. Sorrow, being sad about, regretting our sin. Confession, turning to God, to tell God that we are sad about and regret our sin and need God's forgiveness for our sin and change. Turning from our sin to turn toward the life that God, our creator and forgiver, means for us to live. Repentance, sorrow, plus confession for forgiveness, plus change, or at darn well least an honest desire to change for a change. Repent all of you or die, Jesus said in our text moments ago. After which he then jumps right in to tell that parable of that fig tree and that vineyard which isn't bearing any fruit. <coughs> What's the truth Jesus is most trying to name in this parable? How about this one? It's easy to limit repentance to sorrow, confession, and change in light of bad stuff. Stuff we've done and God doesn't want us to do. And repentance certainly includes this. But in this parable, I think, we're reminded that there's also repenting to be done, regretting, confessing, changing to be done in light of the so very much good stuff which God does want us to do and has given us every opportunity to do and has fertilized us, nourished us, and blessed us richly so that we can do, but way too often the doing is left undone. To live our lives sinning 
in the sense that we do sinful things that God doesn't want us to do is to live our lives smelling up the vineyard by producing rotten and stinky fruit. And, and all of us still on the journey of being works in progress have, of course, been there, done that, and all of us too, not yet being fully recovered sinners, no doubt we'll each in our own stinking and rotten way be there and do that again. And for that, we are called to repent, to regret our sin, to confess and ask forgiveness for our sin, to, to, and then to change, to turn from the rotten stink of sin. But this parable reminds us that it is also possible to live our lives sinning, not by producing rotting, stinking, dying fruit, but by living dead, producing no fruit. It is for that truth, the truth, of course, which is also true in one way or another about us all, me included. It is for that truth that today's text calls us to repent, to regret the fruit that we were planted to bear but haven't borne, to confess and ask forgiveness for the fruit we were fed and nourished to grow but haven't grown, and to change, to turn from spiritually fruitless, spiritually neutered lives, instead to turn toward, well, to turn toward what? Galatians 5 comes immediately to mind when it says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness gentleness, self-control. Too often, I think, people base discipleship on what they don't do because they love Jesus. They don't swear. They don't drink. They don't have affairs, at least not outside of their own imaginations. Midway through this season of Lent, on the other hand, Jesus asks, what is it you do do because you love him? And I love you. Even as he tells that story, of course, he's all the while doing what he came to do. He's heading steadfastly, determinedly to Pilate's Jerusalem, where he who here says, repent or die like a dead, fruitless tree, will himself be nailed to the dead and fruitless timber of a tree. Because, why? Because people get what they deserve, right? Oh my, no. But because he, upon himself and to a cross, would take what sin deserves. So that sinners, all of us, might know that we are loved all the way to the rot and stench of sin and death, and loved all the way to the grace fragranced and forgiving beauty of his death for sinners, in spite of what they, what we have done or left undone. Which leads me to realize that repentance that is complete repentance actually includes four things. Sorrow, plus confession for forgiveness, plus 
change, or at least a desire to change for change, plus gratitude. Gratitude for the fact that it isn't change, which ushers me into forgiveness and love. It is rather the fertilizing power of forgiveness and love which usher me into new possibilities of change. One way to express that gratitude, of course, a very good way to express that gratitude is to turn in Jesus' direction and say, thank you. But a further way to express that gratitude, Jesus reminds us today, is to turn in the direction of one another and of others to bear fruit. Which the prayer of the day we prayed earlier today prayed and prays for powerfully with these words, which I invite you to keep praying. Eternal God, your kingdom has broken into our troubled world through the life, death, and resurrection of your Son. Help us to hear your word and obey it and bring your saving love to fruition in our lives.